You're listening to Make It Thrive, the company culture podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie Benton, culture consultant and founder of Liberty Mind, and I want to inspire people to create unique company cultures where our human potential can thrive. In this podcast, I talk to organizations and employees about the impact of company culture. Together, we can make it thrive. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to season five of Make It Thrive, the company culture podcast. It is so exciting to be launching season five because, wow, doesn't it feel like the world is such a different place since I first started this podcast? And so much has happened. And part of me feels like we're on the cusp of a workplace revolution, which means this week's guest kicking us off for season five comes with perfect timing. Now, I have to say that securing this guest was a big moment for me. I'm not one for celebrities or superstars, but put me in front of a great author and I'll go weak at the knees. Books have always been my first love. So, anybody that writes a book that really changes my mindset or stimulates me to think differently is always an icon in my eyes. I feel incredibly privileged that this guest has taken the time to come on this podcast and share his wisdom with us. So, I highly recommend you find somewhere comfortable to absorb everything from this episode. As I can tell you now, it's a goodie. And I could have probably created a whole season of conversations with this author. So without further further ado, should I say, today I have the pleasure of interviewing Alex Pan, the author of three books about work, technology and creativity. His latest book is Shorter, How Working Less Will Revolutionise the Way Your Company Gets Things Done. And I have to say, it has become one of my favourite books around workplaces so far this year. So if you haven't already, buy it. I can guarantee it will change the way you think about work. Now, before I give away any spoilers, let's get started. Hi, Alex, and welcome to Make It Thrive, the company culture podcast. So tell our audience what inspired you to write Shorter. Well, Shorter is kind of a sequel to my previous book, Rest, which was about the role of rest and leisure and hobbies in the lives of super creative and productive people. And that book really was about individuals, often you know, fairly privileged folks who were able to organize their, you know, their days and their lives as they wanted. And after finishing that, one of the things that I wanted to do was to sort of explore how these ideas could be put into practice by organizations and basically by, you know, people who, you know, who are not independently wealthy or Nobel Prize winners or, you know, otherwise otherwise in a position to set the terms for sort of their own lives. And so I discovered um, companies that were shortening their working hours, you know, moving to four-day weeks, to six-hour workdays without cutting salaries and without reducing profit, you know, order of profits or, or becoming less productive or alienating customers. And so it, they turned out, I thought, to be putting these ideas you know, into practice and sort of creating ways of working, of working together that um, gave people 
of more free time, but also allowed organizations to be better places to work, more productive places to work, and often happier and more sustainable enterprises. So that's why I wrote the book. That's fantastic. I I received it when it was launched, or should I say just before it was launched, and um, I was absolutely blown away by how practical it is, um, because I think that's one of the big things, you know, there are so many questions when it comes to flexible working, and there are so many different types of flexible working models out there that people don't even realise. I mean, like you mentioned, six-hour days, four-day weeks, re- you know, remote working, results-only working environments. I mean, for you, because there's quite a bit of an emphasis, you know, on four-day work weeks. Um, why is that one quite popular? Well, I wanted to zero in on that for a couple of reasons. And number one, things like um, flexible work, work from home, um, these are things that other people have studied and covered pretty extensively. And I think we understand both, you know, both um, the virtues of them, but also the challenges that organizations and individuals have in making those sort of work for them. Shorter hours for me was interesting because, you know, number one, um, it's, you know, it's different. Um, number two, I think it also solves some of the enduring stubborn problems that often remain in companies that implement flexible work or work from home. Um, and it also seemed to me a model that told us some really important things about, the social and collective nature of work today and the importance of thinking about and implementing kind of systemic changes that would allow us to deal with issues like work-life balance, um, sort of challenges around gender in the workplace, making careers more sustainable. All too often, I think, we regard those as problems that individuals have to solve for themselves. Right, that you know, my productivity depends upon my ability to do my stuff faster, or you know, or likewise, programs like flexible work often get interpreted as things that benefit the person who is working flexibly, not the entire organization. Indeed, there's often a suspicion around people who are working flexibly, you know, that, you know, they're not in the office as much. So how do we know that they are as productive because, you know, they're not sitting in their chairs 12 hours a day. And the person who's working flexibly has to do a whole bunch of extra labor in order to stay visible to the organization, Mm. to, you know, deal with all the kind of little issues of coordination that happen kind of organically in a workplace when people can see each other and interact, but which have to actually be taken up and done by a person. And so the person working flexibly often feels like they have to do more work in order to do the, in order to make this work. The thing about the four day week and other kinds of shorter work weeks is that a lot of those tensions go away. Because nobody, you know, there's no stigma around this person working less or this, you know, this person leaving early because everyone is doing it, right? Everybody, you know, if it works, everybody gets to go home at three o'clock or start the weekend 
at Thursday at five, you know, Thursday at five. The other significant thing there is that my ability to start my weekend on Thursday depends on everybody's being able to do that on everybody being able to get their order to get that work done. It's not just about me finishing my stuff. And so it takes what is often unintentionally a kind of sort of individualistic kind of competitive zero sum situation and transforms it into something that is more collective and sort of and win-win. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's actually a really valuable thing in today's workplace for, you know, all kinds of reasons around, you know, building social capital and improving workplace culture and doing a lot of things that um, lots of enterprises want to figure out how to do or do better. Mm. Yes, definitely. Because I think it's one of those things, I mean, you, you sell it so well, especially in the book, because you know, a lot of people think this four-day week is some kind of utopia that only exists right. for certain companies. Oh, you can <laughs> only do that if you're in this industry. And what I love in Shorter is you have such a vast amount of case studies that show different industries and sectors working to a four-day work week. You know, even, right. even businesses that have to operate 24-7. Uh, mm-hmm. So what do you think is it that holds people back from making this change? Well, I think we can get at it by looking at those misconceptions, right? I mean, I think the first one is that um, this is something that only a few kinds of businesses can do, right? If you're a creative agency yeah. or, you know, a place where how you work is actually part of your brand, then, you know, a four-day week is a great calling card. Well, in point of fact, there are, you know, I've got restaurants, I have call centers, you know, factories, you know, the, the place that invented the Balti Bowl, which is, you know, <laughs> or in, in Birmingham, they, you know, that factory works a four-day week. And so, you know, it is something that turns out to be possible and beneficial across a far wider range of industries than we would expect. I think another you know, misconception about it is that um, it is kind of very geographically or culturally specific, right? You hear stories about like companies in Sweden doing it and, or, you know, New Zealand. And I don't know what the situation is like in the UK, but in an, to an American business audience, if you say the word Sweden, you know, you might as well be talking about the elves in Middle <laughs> Earth, Right. You know, sort of Scandinavia is this place that has this, you know, like this incredible social welfare system and everyone's beautiful and they're tall, but this has nothing to do with the world that we live in. Yeah. Um, You know, in point of fact, though, one of the companies all around the world are experimenting with four day weeks. One of the most surprising things I found was that the place, two of the places that have the largest number of companies doing this are Korea and Japan, right? Two countries whose languages have words for working yourself to death. Mm. So, you know, if it's, you know, if it's happening there, you know, in places where like the cult of presenteeism and overwork are notorious, even by Silicon Valley standards, that tells you, I think that this is, you know, this isn't just something that, you know, can happen in, you know, in places 
that have, you know, flatbread and rye crisp. Um, (laughs) And then the other thing I think is that, you know, there's this idea that the four day week is this utopian goal or you know, if you were sort of the the Tories in the last election, that the four day week is you know something that was hatched by, um, you know, sort of people in some sort of chavista, you know, workers economic cooperative, um, and that it's going to destroy the British economy, right? In point, you know, and I think, and one of the things, you know, one of the one of the reasons that shorter is such a practical book is that the four-day week is implemented by companies in order to solve a whole bunch of very practical problems on the ground, right? It's not part of the pursuit of, you know, a kind of ideal economic state, or it's not an experiment in social engineering. The four-day week is intended to solve problems in recruitment and retention, in burnout, in organizational flexibility and sustainability, you know, problems that virtually every small company has to grapple with at one time or another. And, you know, it is, and so rather than being something that is kind of super high-minded and derives from, you know, your reading of William Morris and Ruskin and Marx and, you know, sort of at uni, um, this is something that, people do in order to keep their, you know, in order to grow their businesses, um, in order to make sure that things, you know, that they will be able to keep operating their businesses five or 10 years from now in demanding high pressure environments and industries that otherwise would burn them out. So, you know, I think that though, that, you know, once you, once you get your, get your head around the fact that this is actually a very practical tactical thing, that it is something that is available to a wider variety of industries than we normally think, and that it is something that crosses borders, um, you know, sort of pretty enthusiastically. I think that we can begin to see that this is, that this is, this is an approach to business and and a kind of, and a kind of toolkit for solving problems in the workplace that, um, you know, that, even the most practically minded leader should take seriously and take a look at. Yeah, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more with you because it's such a strategic approach rather than some kind of fantasy or or branding exercise. It it really is practical. And I think um, there's a paragraph actually in your book that I feel really hits the nail on the head when it comes to leaders adopting flexible working. Um, You say, for founders, overwork isn't just bad because it consumes people's lives. It's also offensive because it's unnecessary and avoidable. I think that really hammers home um you know the the mindset around people looking at these strategies i mean do you think there's a mindset shift that has to happen before a company can successfully adopt a four-day work week um i don't know that it has to let's put it this way um i would like to think that that it doesn't have to happen this way but it almost always does happen (laughs) that um of founders, first of all, these the companies that do this are almost always run by their original founders or by CEOs who are part of the founding team, 
right? Um, so there is a lot of kind of charisma and social capital that those figures have, mm-hmm. right? They can take a company in a radical direction, even if it's a thousand thousand person company working in you know software that has VC backing and you know all kinds of constraints that normally would prevent it from doing something like this. Um, and what happens is that the founders themselves experience. Sometimes it's a health crisis. It's a brush with burnout. It's something that makes them realize that they can't go on the way that they have been, you know, for often the last ten or fifteen years. Right? These are very hard. These are you know people for whom overwork has been the norm for a decade or more. Yeah. Right? They've come up in industries where you get ahead by staying late, sleeping under your desk, you know, under promising and over delivering. Um, you know, you get. You know, you you work in the kitchen 12, 15 hours a day for weeks on end. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that is how you become really good, good at your craft, and that's how you move up in the field. And at a certain point, they all recognize that, you know what, sort of, this might have been okay when I was young and stupid, but um, I can't keep this up forever, right? <laughs> And there's, and you know, in restaurants where you've got a head chef who is super creative, you know, who really runs things, if that person breaks down, then the whole place falls apart, right? The, the livelihood, you know, the livelihoods of dozens of people depend on the chef being able to do really great work. And so, you know, I think that the, the fact that that they see the need to change, but they're all, but they're also experienced enough. So they can also say, you know what, I know this profession. I know my work well enough so that, you know, I know half of what we do is nonsense and the conventional ways of working are stupid and outmoded and I can come up with a better way. Um, Once you have that combination of the need to change and, and this, and the confidence that you know your work, you know your industry well enough to go in this different direction, then it becomes possible to or uh, uh, to uh, uh, to move to or a four day week or a six hour day. Now, what I've just described, of course, is not something that's particularly rare, right? You know, sort of yeah. burnout, overwork. These things are endemic among founders. Um, you know, the statistics on rates of things like depression and other kinds of mental health challenges among founders and founders of startups, you know, sort of owners of small businesses are remarkably high. And so I think that this is you know, that we're, not, you know, consequently, we're not talking about a small number of people who, you know, struggle with their businesses. It's often people who are working in you know, who have built super successful businesses at a high personal cost, who find this, you know, the most viable and attractive and necessary change to make in order to, you know, in order to keep their businesses going and sort of to make them better. Yeah. 
Definitely. I must agree in regards to that, having that experience of that pain point, because people often ask me, you know, um, what what makes a, a company want to change their culture or, or a, 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 you know, adapt their culture? And I, I always say, you know, unless they've hit a pain point, <laughs> everyone floats on comfortably, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. just that as we are, I suppose, in life, you know, until something gives us some kind of pain, we then have to think, oh, I might have to change something in my life or change the way I'm doing things so it's so true they I suppose there's that real empathy um that they have for also their workers and thinking do do we really want to keep repeating these same mistakes or or this same problem right no I think a, a place a place that um regards workers as disposable and labor as purely transactional is not a place that is going to sort of going to be able to do this, partly because you're probably not going to have workers who are skilled enough to redesign their jobs, or workers who are loyal enough to you to you know to take this risk and make this leap. I think the other you know the other point maybe to sort of to build on is that you know this is a lot like what I saw in Rest. You know that sort of people who discover the value of rest in helping them be more creative and have more sustainable sort of professional lives discover this in exa- you know, they follow exactly the same trajectory right they you know or these are uh, these are people who um, kind of have the come to Jesus moment after some sort of crisis and you know sort of so kind of the bad news is, it seems like we all have to be stupid about this before we can get smart about it. <laughs> the good news is, yeah. you know, it's not too late for any of us. And this is not about, you know, this is not something that even really smart people discover early on in their lives. For whatever reason, it's stuff we've got to learn the hard way. But once we've learned it, you know, you've learned it for life. Yeah, that's so true. I think I think that's wise words for life as in, in work. <laughs> I mean, one thing I definitely picked up on from those who are kind of implementing sort of fl- more flexible working and shorter work weeks is obviously around sort of the benefits to working parents and, and working mums in particular, because they have huge challenges with work-life balance. Um, I mean, it's obvious that having more time off could help with that. Um, from your experience, what do parents say about how four-day work weeks affect their lives? Mm-hmm. So first off, you know, the benefits of having or of a three-day weekend every week or, you know, being able to leave the office at three o'clock and pick up your kids. The logistics of that and the, be- or the uh, and the benefits at a daily level, I think, are pretty self-evident to anybody who's listening who has kids. Um but I think that also, you know, one of the things that the, uh, you know, when you talk to people who work in these companies, they say, you know, not only do they have more time for, you know, life admin stuff um, and, you know, just being able to kind of manage their lives, but they also have more time for themselves, right? More time to rest and recuperate, more time for hobbies, for exercise, for kinds of various sorts of care for either yourself or for others. And, you know, I think that sort of any, you know, any parent will recognize sort of the value of having just a little bit more time for yourself on a daily basis. <laughs> the other thing that's really interesting here 
is that you know, I won't rehearse this, the statistics about you know the number of working mothers you know, who you know, who for various reasons are forced out of full time work into part time work, or all the challenges that they have if they take time off and then try and go back into their you know go back into their old jobs at the at the at the same level that they were at when they left um i think you know plenty of people have experienced this at first hand but one of the really interesting things i see in these companies is that when companies move to four-day weeks they've got to get really serious about stuff like time management Uh, you know you need a certain ruthlessness about um you know about what you decide to work on you need to be highly motivated you know you all and at the same time, you also, because this is a collective enterprise that requires everyone's participation and everyone's success, you need a pretty high degree of sort of empathy, of sort of social intelligence, and you know, of patience. And who is it who possesses that combination of you know great time management skills and sort of ruthlessness and sort of you know and sort of interpersonal interpersonal ability well very often it's working mothers you know and there's you know i don't know people mm. you know one of the thing uh, one of the things that really gets me about uh of uh, d- many conversations about sort of working moms and work life balance is that it's often framed as a as a kind of pr- as a kind of individual problem that can be solved through kind of better time management or, you know, novel tips and tricks, right? My own experience, which includes, you know, looking, you know, the looking at the life of my own mother, most of my aunts, my grandmother, is that these are people who already are, who know everything there is to know about how to manage their time, right? Sort of, there is nothing, particularly nothing that, you know, a middle-aged guy in California can tell them about how to live their lives better. Um, but, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, that the companies that are moving to four-day weeks, you know, do not treat, do not look at working mothers as people who are like less than regular, you know, sort of other employees because they can't stay late because, you know, or if they, they, you know, they can't hop on a plane at, you know, at the drop of a hat. Rather, what motherhood signifies is a capacity to balance a whole bunch of really difficult things, to make challenging choices, to value your work and uh, your work and your time um, in a way that is going to be really beneficial to an organization that va- that puts a high value on its time and on everybody's time. And so while working moms often face a penalty in conventional companies, in companies that work four-day weeks, motherhood, uh, mothers can extract a premium. Um, they are more in demand, sort of, they are more like, you know, they are more attractive to employers. And not surprisingly, they're often the highest performers and the most loyal employees. Um, so there is this really interesting structural thing that happens in companies that shorten their work weeks that don't just, be, you know, that provide these kind of longer term 
systemic benefits for working parents, particularly mothers, um, as well as the kind of immediate logistical benefits of being able to leave when school gets out or having another day in the week to deal with family and life and caregiving and one hopes also yourself. Yeah, no, absolutely. You, you make such a, a valid case for it, especially in regards to, like you say, that, that self time, because in between juggling everything, you know, work and care responsibilities, there's, there's very little left um, for you as an individual for any time at all for your, for self-care. And it's one of those things I, I don't have children myself, but I've got a friend who, you know, has a, a child and, and she's always like, you know, I'm, I'm a full-time mum and I'm a full-time worker. And she's just, you know, sometimes she's just so drained and, and so tired and that that weekend it's like she's only just started to recover before she has to that, then get back onto the roller coaster <laughs> exactly no that you know that extra day makes all the difference in the world you know particularly in a world that expects working mothers to work as if they don't have children yes. you know to raise children as if they don't work <laughs> to do both to some impossibly high yet vaguely articulated standard and then to hold them personally responsible if they're not able to do all of this stuff to whatever standard society deems is, you know, sort of, sort of is the minimum necessary. Um, it's a completely, you know, when you lay it out that way, you realize that is a completely insane system. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it and really is. yeah, you know, and and a shorter work week is a way of st of addressing some of the, you know, some of the structural issues that. Um, that have created created that insanity in a way that benefits everybody. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in in shorter, you give very practical examples and guidance about the mechanics of adopting a shorter work week. However, from experience, where do companies stumble the most when trying to adopt a new practice? Hmm. You know, um, I think that. There. Okay. First of all, I think it's you know uh, it is it's it's less about stumbling than about getting up quickly. Um, I mean, in the sense that you know companies that do this well always have first of all a phase of you know let's say a month or so where you get people together and you figure out all right how are we going to make this work right what parts of the day can we redesign. Um, what do we do under this circumstance? If clients need this, how do we deal with customer service? You run through kind of everything that can go wrong and you try to figure out, you try and anticipate and come up with contingency plans for it. Um, and then you do a trial period that is very experimental, right? You're trying, everyone acknowledges that you know, the first month you're kind of in this state where it's, you know, you're, you're essentially in this kind of, you know, new place. Um, it, you know, it's sort of yeah. like, it's sort of like your first month at any new company. Um, everybody's got to kind of reinvent everything. And so you have to make it, you have to make it okay to experiment, to try new things, to disregard, you know, to disregard stuff that you thought looked great on paper, but really isn't working out in practice. And then over time, people kind of figure out what works best for them and for the organization. and these new practices kind of settle out. I think that, you know, the couple things that are kind of most challenging 
are, first of all, I think redesigning meetings is one that is significant, but a really great early win. Um, all the companies that have regular meetings um, make them dramatically shorter, right? And the, you know, the, the, the weekly hour long kind of check-in meet all hands check-in meeting becomes something that's 20 minutes long if it exists at all, you know, and, and is not replaced by email. Um, people also have other practices like requiring agendas beforehand, making meetings much smaller, thinking a little more about who actually needs to be in the room and only holding a meeting in order to make decisions as opposed to disseminate information. And I think in, you know, in, in, if there is, if there is one benefit that comes out of, you know, sort of, uh, of the lockdown and most of us working from home, I think it's a recognition that an awful lot of what gets communicated in meetings actually can be communicated by email with no particular loss to the organization. I think, you know, making those changes is a challenge partly because our meeting technology often fights back. Um, there are calendaring programs that default to an hour because you know, some programmer in Seattle decided in 1985 that meetings were an hour long and coded that in such a way as to make it really hard to change it to, you know, 15 or 20 minutes. But I think, you know, there's also this, you know, but I, I think also the habit of, you know, that, uh, that most of us have of, you know, coming in, you know, a minute early or a minute late waiting for everybody else. And then, you know, you kind of have some small talk and then you get into the business and then things kind of drift around and the meeting itself kind of expands to fill up the hour versus being something that is short and sharp and pointed and that ends the instant you've made a decision and, and you have a path forward. That's actually you know, it's a, it's a habit that people need a little time to get into. I think another big area is around technology use that one of the, that, um, uh, in particular developing practices that help people be more focused with their technologies rather than distracted by their technologies. So this can mean things like, you know, checking email once or twice a day rather than having the window open and, you know, kind of reflexively responding to every new thing that comes into your inbox in real time. And that's something that many of us are so accustomed to doing that it takes a little while to get used to, you know, to, to ignoring it. Um, and I think likewise that, you know, developing a more experimental mindset with the tools that you use, thinking through why it is that you use them in particular ways, exploring, you know, exploring some of the more powerful but harder to use functionalities is something that I consistently hear is both challenging at first, but super rewarding once you've done it. Um, and so I think that, you know, those are, those are the things that I regularly hear as some of the biggest challenges. Um, the thing that I don't hear as a big challenge is uh, dealing with clients and how clients react, which is a real, which is a real surprise for everybody. You know, one of, you know, one of the big, you know, every founder worries that the clients are going to hate this, right? And this is the great, and changing around working hours is the, uh, and the impact that it will have on client relations is the great objection that I hear 
in, you know, when I give talks about this. Um, and in point of fact, I've heard one story of one prospective client who said, after hearing that a company works a four-day week, you know, this isn't going to work for us, right? We need people to be sleeping with their phones or of under their pillows. So, you know, when I have a brainstorm at 2 a.m., I know I'm going to be able to reach someone. In point of fact, companies are very supportive because number one, um, they've often worked with these, you know, they've, uh, clients have often worked with these companies for some time. So, you know, each party kind of understands the other. Um, but also clients are dealing with exactly the same problems with overwork and burnout and work-life balance and recruitment and retention that companies that move to four-day weeks are dealing with. You know, and it's one thing to hear about solutions coming out of, you know, coming out of, you know, Riverdale and Elvenland. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's another thing when a company that you know really well, that knows you, that, you know, share some elements of, yeah. you know, of, of culture and commitment is doing it because that's a lot closer to home. And if they can make it work, then it suggests that there are things that you can learn from them that maybe you can implement in your own workplace. And so for all, of, you know, and so for those reasons, clients turn out to be far more supportive of companies that are doing four day weeks than anybody expects. Yeah, definitely. I must agree. I've, I've spoken to so many businesses who've um, changed their working hours or, you know, they've shifted. And one of the things they, they always say is we've actually influenced our clients to take this up because they're so mm -hmm. amazed at how productive we are and how focused our team is and, um, you know, the, the way we're doing things differently and how creative we are because we have set times for collaboration. So, um, it's great to actually hear it's almost like starting a bit of a movement when you take it on because you then sort of see a bit of a domino effect happening. Yeah. You know, I th and um, yeah, lots of the companies that implement four day weeks do so after seeing peers in the industry do it. So, for example, in the last few months in the UK, there have been a bunch of um, HR companies that have uh, that have moved to four day weeks and they all seem to be inspired by the same one or two sort of uh, sort of early adopters um so yeah. it, you know it's definitely the case that there is this you know there is this kind of social contagion effect and that more broadly that this is a global movement that is only becoming kind of self-aware um when i was doing these when i was doing the interviews for the book you know, a year ago or 18 months ago, lots of these companies thought they were pretty much the only ones who were trying this. And it's kind of a surprise to find out, you know what, there are more than a hundred other companies who are, you know, who are going through the same things that you are, who are finding the same solutions to the same problems and often are using the same processes and taking the same steps. And that turns out to be, you know, I think, really validating for the companies that have already done it and should also give some confidence to leaders and to companies that are thinking about this, that there actually is a, there is now a pretty well-trodden path, right? There are clear steps that everybody takes, questions that everybody asks, and a way and a strategy that you can employ to redesign your time and redesign the way that you work 
um, so that you maximize the odds of success and make and are able to make this a permanent change. Definitely. I think that's so valid. I think, you know, doing a bit of research around, you know, who's doing this in, in your area or in your industry or even, you know, down the road or, you know, even in the same area can really help to make you realize that actually that there are so many companies out there doing it and doing it really, really well. Um, so I think that makes a, a really good point. And, and what you've said, you know, that the examples you've given and some of those areas to look at, I think is a great starting point because that's one thing I think more businesses are going to want to start to move to flexible working models because of what mm-hmm. we've gone through, especially with this global pandemic really shifting our idea of the workplace. Um, and I think what you've covered today is actually some really practical steps that people can start thinking about um, and actually answering answering some of these big questions because so many times I hear, you know, that people are interested, but then because they haven't got one of those big questions answered, they're like, oh, well, it won't work for us. Um, whereas right. actually it, it, it can, it really can. There, there, there's Where there's a will, there's a way, as they say. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and I think this, this is the time to try it for a couple reasons. And number one, for places that are, you know, that are open offices or retail establishments where, you know, people, where it's difficult to practice social distancing, moving to a flexible work schedule or to a combination of four-day weeks and flexible work or in retail, creating shifts where you've got fewer people working kind of behind the till at any given time, but you expand your opening hours is a great way to create a physically healthier workplace while also continuing to be able to serve your customers. So in shorter, there are retail places, garages, um, you know, places that are very client focused that move to move employees to six hour shifts, but stay, but leave the doors open for 12 hours a day. This is also something um, sort of governments that shorten their working working hours for employees often do. And the virtue of that is that, you know, on one hand, employees get the benefit of a shorter workday and often say and often save time on commutes because, you know, rather than opening up at nine o'clock, you're now opening up at let's say seven. So, you know, you're beating the rush hour. You're also beating the rush hour when you leave. Um, so you're saving additional time that way, but, but, you know, customers now are able to visit you before they go to work or pick up stuff, you know, sort of after work, which means sort of more business for you. And likewise, you know, the open office turns out to be as popular with viruses as it is Hmm. with designers. I mean, if we, you know, basically if you were a virus and you designed a work, you designed a workplace that was super friendly to you, (laughs) it would look exactly like, you know, sort of Facebook or WeWork or one of these other open, open, you know, open plan offices where people generally are facing each other, where you've got recirculated air and where you have virus friendly services Mm -hmm. like doorknobs and kitchen handles and a lot of glass and plastic where viruses can live for a long time. And so we actually have a non-trivial challenge with making the modern office a place that is physically healthier. 
And shortening the work week can help deal with that immediate problem. In the longer run, companies that shorten their working hours have higher levels of social capital, they're more resilient places, workers are more committed and more imaginative, and what that translates into is a greater capacity to um, plan for and adapt to the next emergency, right? What we are dealing with right now is not, you know, as we come out of the peak of COVID, what we're going to come into is not the end of the movie, but the end of the first season. Yeah. And, you know, it's been renewed for a couple more seasons already. <laughs> yeah. Right. COVID is going to come back this winter. And this is probably a dress rehearsal for something much worse. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, you know, and shortening working hours is a way of dealing with the immediate problems, the immediate logistical and kind of practical problems of making offices of making offices and retail establishments safe places to go into while and also getting them open and in the long run making them making them establishments making them businesses that are better able to respond to the next set of emergencies yeah oh definitely i massively agree and i think you've hit a hit a really good point there about you know actually becoming future proof because like we say this this probably isn't the end this is probably just the beginning of a of a new phase and i'm sure everything that you've said today alex is really going to inspire people to make some serious changes and for those of you who are interested in alex's book shorter how working less will revolutionize the way your company gets things done I would highly recommend you add that to your Amazon wish list right now um, because it's got all the practical ideas that you need to start looking to adapt to our new future of flexible working. But thank you so much for joining me today, Alex. Oh, thank you, Lizzie. It was a real pleasure. You've been listening to Make It Thrive, the company culture podcast with me, your host, Lizzie Benton. If you've enjoyed listening and want to keep up with all things culture, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to welcoming you back next week.